This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for... $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition pizza pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love, all for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. It is a gorgeous day here in Brooklyn. We are now in full swing of spring, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to cooking more often just because my CSA is just starting up. So always a good reason to get out there. And also the farmer's markets have good stuff right now. Um, but we talk a lot about cooking, and we talk with cookbook authors, chefs, etc., And today, I wanted to talk about how the physical space that we cook in and its amenities, um, how does that affect what or how we cook today? And, And what does that, which is to say kitchen design, say about our society? So if you look over the years, it actually says a lot um, from upstairs, downstairs configurations to open kitchen layouts today to all the newfangled appliances um, from from back from refrigerators to instant pots today. Um, The way we cook is really and the way we eat is really tied to design ethos and technology. So as we embark upon a new age of maybe robotics or automation, (laughs) it's really great to look back and see where we've come. So in this wonderful book called The Mid-Century Kitchen, Sarah Archer is a bit of a historian and sociologist and design critic. And she, for this is her second book. She also writes about design and material culture for Slate, The Atlantic, Architectural Digest, and The New Yorker. So I'm really pleased to welcome on Sarah Archer. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. And actually, your latest gig is with American Craft Company? American Craft Council, yeah. American Craft Magazine. I'm going to be starting on as a contributing editor. That's really exciting. Um, Yeah, I'm super excited about that. All right, I'm going to look out for those pieces. Um, But on to, uh, sorry, The Mid-Century Kitchen. You've also written a book called The Mid-Century Christmas. Yes. So what did you want to do with this? I mentioned that it's a bit of history, mm-hmm. a lot of beautiful photographs, archival photographs, of course, from ads and so forth. Yeah. What were you trying to Like, to why? What, yeah, would, why? What would possess someone? <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, I'm fascinated about 
really generally about that time period mm -hmm. and have found it, I weirdly enough kind of came to it through studying the history of craft because there was a real mm. sort of like counterculture craft movement in the 40s, 50s, 60s that was kind of anti-establishment and kind of pre the hippie movement, like pre oh, what wow. we think yeah. of as like macrame, but people like, uh, you know, artists like Ruth Osawa working at Black Mountain College, like that sort of thing in the 50s and 60s. And that really, you know, was a reaction in certain ways against kind of the mass market sort of Levittown suburban mm. Um, sprawl of the mid-century and so I started then I kind of started to think like wow what was the what were they reacting against you know what was this all about ah. like the conformity of it so I sort right. of came at it backwards in a mm. way um, and once I started delving into this time period the Cold War vis-a-vis -vis interiors I sort of couldn't get enough of like how much was going on and mm. how rich the, you know, the primary sources, the magazines, the, you know, yeah. the ads, there's so much going on in this time period because the world had radically changed. Um, and there's, and in certain ways you'd never know it from reading the magazines and the ads. Yeah. It presents this very sort of placid, elegant, kind of lovely world in which to entertain and live. But it was on the heels of people's lives really being turned upside down by war and the depression and then also having access for the first time in a lot of cases to things like that we totally take for granted like have mm. you know having um a gas stove and not having to worry about you know coal or wood having running water having you know if you think back to like 1950 you're not really that far away from like people not having indoor plumbing you know it's uh -huh. really is this kind of sort of like really moment of drastic change so I am fascinated by how much change was happening then and in certain ways how little has changed since yeah. that period. Because if you look at like the basic amenities you have in a kitchen nowadays, yeah. if it's whether it's like a souped up, like glorious, gorgeous architectural digest kitchen versus your regular kind of standard apartment kitchen, apart from the materials, like your standard apartment kitchen probably won't have beautiful marble countertops, but you've got your stove, you've got your fridge, you got cabinets, you know. It's, yeah, you're kind of good to go. And it's not that isn't really that all that different from Whoa. kind of the standard like post war interesting 50s, 60s, apart from the microwave. And maybe if you have like a seltzer maker or the, the <laughs> yeah. that's, you know, kind of the little gizmos, <laughs> right. but like the basics are, are you know, kind toaster. Of, we still yeah, got those pretty, pretty much. Um, wow, that's really true. Um, except for the color palette, which we'll get into which later, which is a, a dead lot. giveaway. <laughs> Total giveaway. Exactly. Got it. Got the um, avocado. Before we get into some of the history behind behind this um I I have to say like you know this time period is so in vogue right now mm -hmm. like if you just walk across the street to this like cool shop yep um they have all these like furniture from the mid-century mm -hmm. era and that's mm -hmm. like the coolest thing anyone with like sort of like taste is like craving this mid-century yep. era the clean lines yeah what's yep. the deal with that so there that's actually there's been a lot written about that there was a great mm -hmm. piece in the times um I think maybe a year or so ago that I think it was called something like why mid-century won't mm. die mm -hmm. <laughs> or something okay. and it was sort of like because things do tend to phase in and out like there was a big art deco craze in the okay. 70s like that kind of came back in and then it went away again and there has been this real um love of sort of modern looking furniture things like let's say west elm which is kind of i think they would be f freely admit are kind of like looking right back to like the herman millers the Eameses, yeah, yeah. kind of mm -hmm. like sort of riffing off of those shapes yeah. those forms and i think it's because in a sense, it's modernness and it's clean lineness mm -hmm. is, or at least feels to us, kind of evergreen. Yeah. And if you're putting 
a modern apartment together, and let's say you've got gadgets, you have your laptop, you have all your gizmos, you have you know art on the walls, you sort of want things to be geometric and kind of rational so you can mm. have your gorgeous book wall. You don't necessarily want Victorian furniture. It's frilly, sort of fussy, frilly. It's a lot to clean. It's sort of doilies. looks... It doesn't look <laughs> quite right with like a Macintosh computer, let's uh-huh. say. But there's something about the mid-century yeah. aesthetic that dovetails nicely with oh, okay. gadgets and kind yeah. of that sort of Ikea like modular mm. look that people mm-hmm. you know especially younger people when you're kind of moving from place to place and you're kind of like okay I'm going to pack up all my books and how am I going to display them more, less yeah. is more so I think it just it seems to work for people for yeah. kind of all the reasons that the designers envisioned easier to clean that makes sense yeah thanks for putting some sense into that <laughs> <laughs> just my just my two cents that's you yeah. know I think there's lots of reasons for it but right and I I, I mean it looks great too um, but before we got there, yeah. um, I think it's really interesting that you that you show in the first chapter that kitchens really didn't change much mm-hmm. until like the mid 1800s. Yeah, the, well, so there was a the period stove. of time, it yeah. was really stoves were the yeah. first in the kind of the middle of the 19th century, um, like the Oberlin stove was one of the big commercial mm-hmm. stoves that was available in the, in the middle of that century. But it, before that, it they remarkably were almost medieval in certain Mm -hmm. ways. Like there was, you know, like housing, building construction and techniques evolved and were refined. But this idea of having... And the way that you can see it in North America is if you visit a place like Colonial Williamsburg okay. and kind of you get to see the kind the of the gigantic yeah. hearth, <laughs> um, summer kitchens when you had outbuildings or mm. the hearth in the kitchen would be kind of the one of the main heat sources for right. the entire house. Mm. Um, and it was crucially a workspace and not a living space. And I think that's what it reflects is kind of a bigger conversation about how different people lived and what the kitchen meant who and who. So Mm -hmm. really kind of the idea of what your kitchen looks like kind of depends on who you are. And if you're working in a kitchen in that period of time, chances are that it's not your kitchen. You're working for somebody else. I love this. What, what your kitchen looks like reflects who you are. (laughs) And you go to my kitchen, you see my laptop all over the counter. Exactly. Right. with stuff. <laughs> totally. Whereas mine basically is like a coffee and yogurt dispenser. It's like that's it's like the place you go to get yogurt from the fridge and that's pretty much it. <laughs> and soda stream maybe. <laughs> exactly. Right. right. Seltzer. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Um so eternal. Um but I didn't realize that you mentioned, you know, the, the stove was a great innovation. There was the Franklin stove, mm-hmm. thanks to Ben Franklin. Good old Ben Franklin. Good old Ben. Yeah. But actually a lot of women were behind um the design charge to modernize and very much so. Yeah, yeah there was this Talk fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, they're just these kind of almost like feminists bef- way before their mm-hmm. time. And the funny thing is, I mean, one of the earliest ones was um, uh, a chemist who um, worked really hard in kind of the hygiene and home economics. Is that Christine Frederick? Before her, oh, I before, think it was Ellen okay. Richard Swallow. Ellen Richard Swallow, and Got she it, yeah. was sort of one of the earliest chemistry PhDs in North America, and kind of had herself a very modern career. She was a career yeah. woman in like MIT. A very early, mm-hmm. but knew that it wasn't a realistic goal for her to sort of say, "Well, everybody can get a chemistry PhD and be," mm-hmm. you know. It's yeah. like I mean, she really was looking at, at reality and saying, like, the, you know, the worlds we live in is such that women are going to be in the kitchen doing this work and I want to make it better for them. And she was part of the early wave of kind of women with scientific and management expertise who devoted themselves to what we now call home economics. And it was Mm. sometimes called, um, it was derived from actually, Christine Frederick was one of the pioneers of bringing in 
the logic of the factory mm. into the kitchen, which the is a funny place. thing because right, it was yeah. the Victorian era was all about separating them. Like, yeah. this is the hearth, the home, the cozy, you know, warm and fuzzy place where we keep politics and business ah, at bay. Okay, right. Whereas then. Um, she was looking at um, the work of um, Frederick T- Winslow Taylor, who was one of the earliest scientific management kind of uh, workflow proponents, and he would do motion studies and kind of tell people like Bethlehem Steel, like, no, you want your workers standing right over here, and then you want two feet between them and this mm. tool because that maximizes efficiency, okay. you know, maybe minimize the number of steps. So Christine Frederick... Um, looked at that and said, there's a way that we can apply this to the home. So it was in a way kind of bringing in this very foreign thing, the logic of like efficiency and fact, the factory to women's to work. to the women's yeah, world and saying, seriously. basically, mm-hmm. we would look at that and say, well, feminism means that, you know, everybody contributes equally <laughs> sure. to the house. Right. But like in her, you know, <laughs> writing in Baby like stuff, 19, yeah. 1917, right. it was like was fe- feminism in a way means making life better for women. And that's mm-hmm. where they belonged. Yeah. And and the Beecher sisters were involved in this field as well. Yes. So this was uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe and yep. her sister Catherine Beecher. Yeah, yeah. wrote this treatise on mm-hmm. um, domestic economy, <laughs> and that is probably the very earliest example of somebody actually laying it, taking pen to paper, mm-hmm. and laying it out and saying, "Here's your workspace." And it was. It's so long ago that they're really talking about things that we would not quite consider hygienic, like everything was natural wood. Mm-hmm. You know, we prefer to have, you know, inorganic surfaces where everything is like a hospital, you know. Yeah, so yeah. there's so it's kind of it's it's rustic by our standards, but it was the idea of having all of your ingredients in kind of a separate bin and having a place for them so you could, you know, close those little slots and sort of yeah. have everything neat and clean, uh, not attract rodents and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Um, So, yeah, they were sort of looking at, you know, the end of the Civil War and kind of, you know, people are going to be moving and setting up new houses and there's um, industrialization is increasing apace in North America and that it'll only increase. Um, Yeah, and that this is a way to keep up with the times. Yeah, I love how you illustrate how these advancements from women of an earlier period, even though, you know, they're acknowledging that Okay, maybe this sounds antiquated to say now that women are the one who are going to benefit from a better right. kitchen design only. But still, by doing so, um, you see why it makes sense a little bit later on when you get to some of the ads in the 20s. And mm-hmm. women are wearing like what I would consider to be like an evening gown exactly. and like pearls. <laughs> and they're able to do this. But that was kind of amazing because yes. they're able to, you know, have nice fingernails and not be gritty and covered yes. in slime. Or Absolutely. Something. It's exactly yeah. covered in, in detritus. Or whatever right. they, yeah, I mean, and that becomes the, the the advertising from that time period. It's really starting in the twenties. It's fascinating because it shows that there. And I would recommend if anybody really wants to geek out on this time period, there's mm-hmm. a classic book called Objects of Desire by the design historian Adrian Forty, okay. who talks really extensively about kind of appliances and advertising, largely in Great Britain but also in the U.S. about the way in which this stuff was marketed in a sense, to a new kind of person. Mm-hmm. And it was looking at people who, in that time period, were not descended from the class of people who would have had help on right. kind of a grand scale. So there are people who maybe it's, you know, mom, dad, two kids, kind of the nuclear family, the way we think of it, which is, as a middle class entity, is kind of a new idea at this point. Mm-hmm. And so they're not appealing to people who 
let's say, had a house full of servants and then the depression happened and now they're like anti-mame and they have to like, you know, somehow live on their own. Mm-hmm. Those people still had help. Like right. if you had help up to a point, you you're, you're probably were okay unless you were completely wiped out. This is attracting people who never had help in the first place. Okay. But they can say, oh, if I have like, you know, a, a Hoover vacuum cleaner uh-huh. and a stove and a, and a monitor Dishwasher, top fridge, yeah. then I can kind of entertain on mm. this sort of more polished scale. I don't have to spend eight hours a day you know, cleaning, cleaning, cooking, cleaning, you know, doing like literally doing laundry was like, took like a solid day. That's why it was called blue (laughs) Monday. That's where the expression blue Monday comes from. It's sort of like you basically like your whole life was devoted to this. So it was really freeing for people. The idea that, and so by showing these appliances, like the monitor top fridge, which looks like this hulking, you know, behemoth Uh by, by our standards, with these people kind of that look sort of like they're from the Great Gatsby, like they're wearing pearls and kind of long yep. dresses and, you know, t- top and tails. It's this like you can kind of live this like slightly glammed up mm-hmm. lifestyle with these devices. Right. It was the, it was freeing. Yes. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I think I think truly it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, I love that, you know, these women, I, I've never heard of some of these women, but they're like pioneering career women in totally. architecture in ar- engineering in science mm-hmm. that you know we, we all know Ben Franklin but I think this is really great a that lot you of these other women yeah, yeah they had they're kind of not as well known and there's one of them the the female um, architect from Austria uh, Margaret Chitzlohatsky mm-hmm. is not a household name right really should be um, the woman who designed the Frankfurt Margaret kitchen Margaret Lynn Lihotsky yeah I believe yeah. that is mm-hmm. the correct pronunciation okay. it's, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue <laughs> yeah. if you're not a German speaker but um, it's interesting. Her designs, um, she was working in the mid to late 20s during this kind of utopian period following World War One, where we're, you know, going to build like new efficient apartment buildings for people to give them, you know, housing after World War One and have them be light filled and have green space for everybody. And it's all great. And then the Nazis came to power Uh-oh. and her values were at odds with Nazi values vis-a-vis specifically women working. She was Mm. designing kitchens that were small and compact with the idea that women in the 1920s would work during Mm -hmm. the day and then kind of make dinner for their families. And so she said, I want to make this super easy, make everything really efficient. Um, There was lots of color. They're really attractive. Um, Nazi values, among other many other dastardly terrible things, um, did not want women working. They wanted women Uh. at home having babies. And (laughs) so her architecture, her design was counter to that. And I think part of the reason why there was this period of time in the 30s and 40s when her designs were referred to as the Swedish model, Mm. possibly because that was more appealing to people in allied countries. Like, Uh oh, it's this kind of clean Scandinavian look. And it was actually, she was in the the wrong wrong place. And she, and I I really think that's one reason why more people don't know her name. Wow. Well, well, let's talk more about Margaret Schutlihotsky. Um, but after the break, we're going to talk more about this this golden era for modern design, <laughs> for mid-century design, and uh, all the fun stuff that you guys know about, t- bake, uh, Pyrex, Tupperware, mm-hmm. and all, all that good things. stuff. We're going to cut to a quick little commercial break, and we'll be right back chatting more. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, 
and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718-362-3539. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. It's Todd Shulkin, the host of Inside Julia's Kitchen here on HRN. Inside Julia's Kitchen carries on Julia Child's legacy of introducing the brightest lights in the food world to a wider audience, just as Julia did from her home kitchen. Look for Inside Julia's Kitchen wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back chatting with Sarah Archer, the author of The Mid-Century Kitchen. It's America's favorite room from workplace to dreamscape. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're talking in the 1940s to 1970s. Why dreamscape? That's a good question. I think I I wanted to contrast it with the idea of it being a workspace Mm -hmm. and that the idea that contemplating a dream kitchen, which is something that many of us do, uh, even those of us who already have, yes, it's sort of hard not to, (laughs) is is kind of a relatively recent phenomenon. Like the idea of having a dream kitchen, let's say, in the year 1900 would have been like having a dream broom closet or a dream, like it was really a quotidian workspace. Or like... 400 servants. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> it would be, you know, kind of have it have like you certainly you want the most efficient good appliances mm-hmm. for your help or if you're a regular person who's getting by, you have a stove in your one room apartment that mm-hmm. is the heat source for your family and that's where you live. And it's not the idea of a dream kitchen was completely alien. So on mm-hmm. at every level of society it kind of didn't really make sense and it wasn't until um to some extent the 20s and 30s, but really in full force after the war in the 1950s and 60s that the dream kitchen as a kind of status symbol and as a hangout space, as like a cool place to spend time, potentially entertain, becomes a goal and like a daydream for people. It's true. And I really do think that this is where it like affects our our everyday life and like confidence. Mm -hmm. I talk to a lot of people who don't want to entertain because they think their kitchen sucks. Right. And then, you know, we all crave the best cookware, gleaming copper, you know, like um, there's all kinds of fads too. You you know, we want a butcher block in the middle of the the kitchen. Exactly. Or something like that. To do all of your butchering. Yeah, if only that, (laughs) then maybe I would be confident enough to cook more often. Right. But during this heyday of of beautiful, like, dreamscapes of Mm -hmm. kitchens that they, it was really, this was like the future. Absolutely. And there was a real, that's one of the funny things that I've actually was kind of surprised to learn when I was researching that time period and contrasting it to this time period, Mm -hmm. that in the 50s and 60s in particular, there was this real, um, not just in kitchenware, I think in in life in general, this fascination with the future. And I Uh think it's understandable because the decades that preceded that, um, people's daily lives had radically transformed. You went from having horse-drawn carriages to cars, from having you know, coal stoves to gas stoves from, you know, not having a washer dryer to suddenly having a washer dryer and having getting a whole day back in your week Mm -hmm. and sort of like, wow, all of this happened in these couple decades that, you know, what will happen in the next few decades? And it's, you know, to some extent, like the computer revolution happened and that transformed our lives in ways that we're still figuring out. But in terms of daily life 
its appliances and cars have sort of gotten more refined and different and differently styled, but they have not radically changed in yeah. the way that we experience True. them. So I think that there was this period of time in the 50s and 60s where looking at like Star Trek, the Jetsons, uh-huh. you know, all of the kind of sci-fi, like no sort of wild notions about how people would eat and what, you know, you would have some machine to kind of create, you know, like little perfect pods of nutritional material for you that you would have a robot made that, mm-hmm. and still not work, right? Like Jane Jetson, you would just be like there and, you know, right, and also right. have a robot made. Um, and that really hasn't happened. And it's shown, and nowadays, a lot of the trends that you see in kitchen, in kitchen dreamscapes are almost like straight out of the 20s and 30s, right? Like right, you said, right. like subway tile and, and schoolhouse lights and, you know, soapstone countertops. It has this very kind of antique vintage feel. It does. Yeah. Not really so much about gadgets, more about splendor and kind mm-hmm. of rich materials and like lovely light-filled interiors that like right. seem almost timeless. Right. So I was fascinated by the fact that this whole kind of futuristic thing is a thing of the past. You mentioned automobiles. I thought it was really interesting that there's a correlation there. There's like this bizarre connection. It's which, from our point of view in 2019, makes no sense whatsoever. But there was actually, and it's partly because, um, in just as a practical matter, General Motors owns Frigidaire or owned in during that time period. So when you went to Motorama to see all the cool new cars, like Uh in 1958, you'd also see a dream kitchen. You'd see, you know, the kitchen of tomorrow and Uh what kind of cool appliances or a portable grill or, you know, what have you. And they lent some of the aesthetics of the time. Absolutely. So the chrome, maybe like, you know, logos. Yep. The color palette. The color palette, hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And that really, going back a couple decades, um, at the end of the Depression, there was a Madison Avenue ad man named Ernest Elmo Calkins who wrote... Um, a sort of a treatise, like a manifesto about mm-hmm. uh, called Consumer Engineering that was all about trying to recast consumer products um, with an eye toward disposability. Yeah. So that things that you would buy, like a durable hey, good, thanks. like a fridge. Exactly. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <For that. laughs> thanks a lot, climate change. You have to get um, a new phone every exactly. two years. Exactly. Okay. So that begins in the car industry. Mm. Annual styling. Um, annual, so like this model. This model, this new color. Yeah. Oh, now it comes in forest green. How chic. And then that extends both the literal color palette and kind of the underlying logic of it to things that normally you wouldn't think of as fashion accessories like fridges, but then you do. Right. And then that happens again in the 80s and 90s when an iMac comes in candy colors. It's like, oh, I need a new one. And so it's that kind of the, it's that sort of um, disposability creep. And he wrote in this manifesto, essentially, we need to start thinking of things like cars and appliances the way people think about razors and like toothpaste. You use it up. And it, it works because yeah. people, it then becomes this vicious cycle where if you look at like, let's say when my husband and I were looking at houses, we saw some like real spectacular harvest gold, like frozen in time gems in mm. South Philly. Like there were some real great ones and it was kind of tempting almost like harvest, I was, gold, harvest like gold, like fridge, or fridge? Okay, appliances. Cool. Yeah. And it's a dead giveaway. You know exactly when the house was built, if it mm. hasn't been renovated. And people don't want to look dated. They want to look, you know, au courant. Yeah. So you want your kind of, I think now one of the, the it uh, finishes is kind of a dark stainless steel. I've noticed that a lot. Right, right. Um, okay. But yeah, so that's, it's this Disposability kind of, for things that otherwise wouldn't be. Like, that really should, know, it's like planned obsolescence. Mixing yeah. bowls, all those cool patterns each year. They're trying to entice yep. you. Yeah. New, but get a new set. Um. And also materials have changed. So plastic mm-hmm. made a big Huge. Uh, progress during this era. What 
What does that have to do with Monsanto? <laughs> do we need more reasons to, 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 to dislike to them? Dislike Monsanto here? <laughs> they wanted to show consumers how, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the first one really was Tupperware that kind of infiltrated the domestic sphere. And one of the reasons that Tupperware parties were launched as a concept was because after World War II, um, Tupperware, which was made from kind of a plastic byproduct, it was it, it is related to the development by Earl Tupper, he's actually named Mr. Tupper, um, of, a, of a material that was used to, to coat wires. And oh. like so many things that were developed during the Bubble war. Gu- oh, okay. The, you know, I was going to say like, byproduct. Yeah, by, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All um, of these kind of, you know, like, like the things that become ubiquitous in the post-war era mm-hmm. that are kind of byproducts of that. So it, but it has a scent. And we're so used to it that we don't really notice like that plastic when you open up like a new yes. shower curtain liner, it has a smell. Uh-huh. We live with it all the time because it's everywhere. <laughs> it's in the oceans. It's, yeah. in, you know, it's all around us. In the 1940s, nobody was familiar with that smell. People were like, what is this? It's like if you're used to glass <laughs> yeah. and porcelain, it's like this is really weird. It's not organic. It's mm. this kind of bizarre thing. You know, is it safe? Turns out, not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the time, it's, you know. So the Tupperware parties were about kind of seeing it and using it in someone's house. So you can okay. see it, it's like, oh, this, okay, I'll get used to this. This is fine. And so then Monsanto kind of kicks it up a notch and does this, you know, home of the future um, in Disneyland where it, it sort of showcases plastic countertop, you know, sort of every aspect of the formica? house. Is, is there that, was there were, yeah. I think there was some okay. formica in it, but it was actually mostly just kind mostly of extruded plastic. plastic. Yeah. So that's a that's I, I don't know. Do you think that that's another reason why this disposability happened is because the products are made Absolutely. with cheaper materials, much much cheaper, and because things that you know ordinarily um, would be considered you know even cars are made sort of much lighter nowadays. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot more plastic in cars because yeah. it makes them more fuel efficient because they're just not as heavy. True. Um, it also makes them in certain ways less durable. Yeah. So I think this idea of you know Tupperware and plastic as being something that's it's not a precious material. It's uh-huh. not you know heirloom quality like you're going to save it for ten generations and pass it down <laughs> you know, like like yeah. a piece of porcelain. It's Tupperware. Here's the old, my grandma. Like your great grandmother's Tupperware. I mean it's kind of for people who collect Aww, that stuff. Sad. It has vintage charm yeah, sure. but it's not precious so it kind of it trains people to think of things as as things to be thrown out so or recycled buy more so you can buy more stuff exactly um i do love i do appreciate that that lends itself to endless sort of like re- uh, restyling restyling yeah. and they went really crazy with it i'm Color. looking at one spread in your wonderful book on one side there's like this candy color candy striped <laughs> candy striped carousel as like a sort of center island thing with it's like amazing. stools that have like they look like candy, candy canes. cane stools yep yep it um, kind of looks like an ice cream <laughs> counter yeah that is wild on the other side i notice a woman wearing um an obi sash yes and there's a paper lantern um, this is obviously Eastern aesthetic. Yes, there is like a kind of formica, here. and it's part of the World's Fair formica house mm-hmm. complex. Like there were all these different kind of fantasy kitchens that were designed. Both of these are, are from that that uh, that project, and this one has there's a kind of pseudo Asian design on the floor. Yes, if you look at that, and then that. there's a paper lantern that kind of contrasts with. There's a sort of ceramic Chinese garden seat in the front. There's an actual incense and burner. And there's incense, so they really wet, and like the ceiling has this kind of, you yeah, know, like, Japanese look, just sort yeah. of mm-hmm. like faux Japanese. So there's this, it's this kind of faux Asian Japanese fantasy, stuff. and the funny yeah. thing is that this kind of goes hand in hand a little bit with the food. Ah, there's this moment, true. particularly around the World's Fairs, when you're mm. visiting these pavilions from these different countries and sampling quote-unquote Chinese, you know, quote-unquote Chinese food as if 
there's just one kind, right? <laughs> or right. sort of, you know, I bet you anything she's making something with pineapples. In oh, absolutely. <laughs> like rumaki or right? like, yeah, bacon, probably bacon wrapped pineapple and like water chestnuts or something. It's like this, this real craze for, yeah. you know, kind of from the tiki craze of mm-hmm. like the post-war period and kind of looking at these different ingredients and kind of the kitchen becomes almost like, you know, you're not going to leave it, but yeah. it's like you're, it's your sort of your command center for exploring all these different kinds of foods. And by our standards, because we've in the past 10, 20 years, we've had this explosion of food from all over the world being interpreted in new, new kinds of ways. People in the, the U.S. eat Korean food all the time. 20 yeah. years ago, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so by our standards, it seems very provincial and kind of, you know, sort of cake mix. But then it was very exotic. Right. Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, this is going back to this affects how we cook and how totally. we, you know, what we want to cook. And I, for one, if I have a, if I have a copper pan, I want to cook something French. Totally. <laughs> I don't know about you. Absolutely. Dutch oven. Onions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's so tied together. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I just love this book so much. Um, I hope everyone gets their hands on it. Um, it looks like that's about all the time we have though today, Sarah. Thank you so much for being an amazing guest. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, t- we'll check out your work um, in uh, sorry, American, American Craft Magazine. Thank yep. you. And elsewhere. And, and elsewhere on we the web. Can follow you at Sarah Archer. No? Yeah, there's sarah-archer.com for the website mm-hmm. and awesome. at Sarcherize on Instagram and at Sarcher on Twitter. Wonderful. So, there you go. All right, Sarah. Well, have a great rest of your beautiful day here you in too. Brooklyn. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see everyone next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported like by you. you for our freshest content, to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration Whoa. happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.